Astrid and Jamila would like to acknowledge that this podcast was made on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boon Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and we note that this sovereignty was never ceded. Welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman. My name's Jamila Risby and I'm joined by co-host Astrid Edwards and we're sitting in the same studio, which is such a rare and special event. Is there no more special occasion than us finally talking about Astrid's favourite book genre of all time? Hello, Jamila, and I have been waiting for this episode. I haven't. I know you haven't. You, you are here under protest and you need to be bribed to be here. But I have been waiting for this for several seasons of Anonymous Was a Woman because I really do think that the genre of fantasy has a bad name and people like you laugh at it. And yet it is very popular. It is hugely popular and people find entertainment or release or escape or friends or God knows that people are finding something in these made up worlds. Let's unpack that for a moment because let's start with me telling you why I don't like the genre. So I think a lot of it comes from some bad stereotypes. I have pictures in my head of of pimply teenage boys dressing up and playing Dungeons and Dragons and reading books that are misogynistic where male heroes with swords win over witches and stuff. Yes. So that is a particular vein that exists i don't like it it doesn't help anybody and that also goes into the male culture of online gaming and all sorts of stuff that is horrible so yeah that does exist but that is a small really odd but nevertheless a small minority of what is fantasy so fantasy includes narnia fantasy includes lord of the rings fantasy includes harry potter like the biggest juggernaut on the planet that just never stops I like some of those books. You watched Game of Thrones and you liked it. I watched it. Game of Thrones. I enjoyed Game of Thrones. I loved reading the Harry Potter series and I continue to love it despite some of my concerns about its author's views. I continue to love those books. I even enjoyed Lord of the Rings. Didn't read all of it, but read The Hobbit and read the first one. So there is some enjoyment of fantasy there. So what about modern fantasy? Does that suggest that it's me sort of liking classics more than... I don't think it's you liking classics. I think it's you liking the good stuff. Now, Lord of the Rings, when it was originally published in the late 40s, that was actually Tolkien, who had been a war correspondent and had experienced World War II, basically writing his trauma. Those little hobbits were actually a metaphor for the English middle class and working class sending their kids to the country so they didn't die in blitz. Really? And Mordor is the literary depiction of the German war machine and how that threatened to take over everybody. Wow. This was his way of processing a global disastrous event through made-up elves and wizards and orcs and hobbits. So they're just metaphors for actual real things. And I think that's when I get hooked, when I can see some link, not necessarily a story set in the real world, but when I can see a link to real world concepts and I can see a purpose for reading. Am I alone, Astrid, in being a little bit tentative about this fantasy business? You're not alone, but I think that I really just ask you and everybody listening to broaden it. So Lord of the Rings brought us lovely things and it is a metaphor. I have more trouble with Narnia, Aslan, the Lion 
he's Christ and God and I have all sorts of weird feelings towards giving kids basically a really weird Christian metaphor and I feel uncomfortable with Narnia. I love fantasy, I love the genre, I loved it as a kid but now I probably wouldn't give anyone Narnia despite the literary achievement I think it is because I think there's a weird message in there. So I think fantasy got a bad name because of what you said before, you know, 13 year old pimply guys, you know, going down the rabbit hole and not really functioning highly with the rest of the world. That is dangerous. I think also everything that happened in the eighties and the nineties, the weird kind of sword and sorcery, Barbarella, guys with swords who conquer everything and the women get to, if they're lucky, be the princess, whatever. That's just, that's just horrible. Right. But mostly it has moved on. And now I find that, fantasy and that does kind of come close to speculative fiction which of course is you know where we have Margaret Atwood and the Handmaid's Tale or Clergy Coleman's work you know it, it can be quite literary it is more inclusive it is interrogating what it means to be different and to be the other it is interrogating what you do when really bad things happen and there is no one to help you and that's kind of what fantasy does fantasy can be really political and so I would really ask everybody to forget the bad stuff and look at the new contemporary stuff or some of the really old classics that don't take religion into account to find escapism or to find friends or to find a little bit of happiness. Astrid, give me a sense of the scale of the popularity of fantasy and also how much of it is actually written by women. They are both excellent questions. So I did look up the world's most popular books. Now, this leaves out the Bible, and I do believe that the Bible over time in all languages is one of the most popular and most distributed books in the world. But in terms of actual best-selling books in the way that we think of a novel these days, of the top five, three were fantasy, one was mystery, and one was written in the 18th century in China. And to be honest, I am not able to give an informed opinion. (laughs) Of those three that are fantasy, it's Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone by J.K. Rowling, The Hobbit by Tolkien, and The Little Prince by Anton de saint Uxbury. So they are like the all-time bestsellers. But then if you look through like the next 20, it's Narnia, it's all of the Harry Potters, it is a few famous kids' books like Anne of Green Gables and Black Beauty and Charlotte's Web. If we were to try to find anything literary here, <laughs> these are really bad. It's Lolita problematic and flawed. It is The Catcher in the Rye, problematic and flawed. And a bunch of stuff that takes a really bad look at Christianity, like The Da Vinci Code. So the books that sell, the books that people come back to, the books that make money, you know, choose your own phrase here, Jam, they're all made up. There's nothing literary on here. And if we want to find one of your favourites, Gone with the Wind, that is down there, probably still in the top 100, along with The Great Gatsby, 1984. Oh God, more Dan Brown. Yeah, look, overall, if we look at where the money is, it's not the kind of stuff that you and I normally talk about. All right. Well, let's get started with where the money is and get cracking on some fantasy novels. Okay. So Jam, today I want to talk about the Shadow and Bone series by Lee Bardugo. You will probably have not read it, but also be very familiar with Shadow and Bone because it is all over Netflix right now. It is in my algorithm. Netflix is recommending this to me rather a lot. Look, you enjoyed Game of Thrones and I think that you actually might enjoy it. I'm 
three episodes in, it is not as violent as Game of Thrones. That was written for adults and adapted to the TV for adults. This is very much YA. This is your 13, 14, 15, 16 year old, depending on what their reading level and interests are. But we're talking teenagers here. So Leah Bidugo herself has written a trilogy, the Shadow and Bone trilogy, and then two duologies to kind of sit within the universe and the characters. So I guess that means that there's seven all together. Main character is female, Alina Starkov. She is an orphan. Her only family, her only friend is Mal. He is also an orphan. And this is fantasy. So, you know, we find out that she has great power. And she is, unlike many fantasy series, she's forced to do bad things in order to get that power. And so this is a real moral conundrum and a useful way for teenagers to kind of figure out how you be an adult, but in this kind of safe fantasy world where everything is made up. What's the representation of female characters like? Because that is a real bugbear of mine when it comes to fantasy, but this is written by a woman, so I am hopeful. So it is a bugbear in historical fantasy. It is much better in the last 15 years. I really do believe that. We've spoken on Anonymous Was Woman before about Jessica Townsend's work. Now that's for younger readers. That is for middle grade readers. So, you know, your eight to 12 year olds, but it is way getting better. And look, it's better these days than Harry Potter. I mean, why on earth was Harry the hero? It should have been Hermione the whole damn time. And that is a different conversation, but the representation of female characters is better now. And it is a good thing to give your children. The interesting thing about Shadow and Bone is there is good representation beyond females. Lee herself has a disability. Lee has osteochronosis, and I apologize if I have said that incorrectly. Sometimes she does use a cane and it is quite a painful condition. One of her lead characters, a guy called Kaz, actually uses a cane and he uses a cane as a source of pride. It is part of his, he's the leader of a criminal gang. Everybody follows him. He also has a scene where he is the sex object. Not that there's a lot of sex here, but he is the kind of object of desire, I should say. So here we have a person with a visual difference using a mobility aid as something that could be desirable. I really like that. And I think one of the things I like about it particularly I'm worried I'm going to say this wrong, is that the disability can't be magicked away. One of the things that sort of frustrates me in various fantasy universes is that things that are difficult and inbuilt societal imperfections and forms of discrimination are kind of dealt with by magic and solved, and I don't like that idea. I like to see the reality of how humans live on the page, even if we are in a fantasy world. I don't like the idea or the the trope of, you know, the woman who uses a wheelchair to get around who can magic away the wheelchair and be able to walk again. Who suddenly becomes a superhero. Yeah. Yeah. I find that gross. I would actually say that that immediately made me think of Mystique in the X-Men trilogy. God, I am such a Geek. geek. I am a secret geek, everybody. It just comes naturally to me. What can I say? And she is, she has a visible difference. She looks different. And her mutant power in the X-Men universe is she can change her appearance. So often she changes herself into looking like some kind of supermodel because she's accepted more. But as you go through X-Men, she stops doing that and she makes people look at her as she is. So there are actually quite good representations of females with a disability and females with difference in contemporary comics and fantasy, but that has all changed. It used to be shit, let's be honest. So you do have what you are referring to did used to happen. 
Sorry for my X-Men sidebar, everybody. Back to Shadow and Bone. It is on Netflix now, and I really want to draw your attention to the casting in Netflix. So often when we read anything, not just fantasy, but anything, particularly in things published in English, the default of the characters is often white, is often Anglo. By not specifying a race or a background, the default is white, which is horrendous and needs to be challenged. In Shadow and Bone... Several of the main characters, including our lead, Alina, don't know their background, but are visibly not white, or at least not what the dominant class is, which is never specified. And so therefore we assume that it might be white. So she is Shu, and that is a foreign nation. And she doesn't know her heritage because she's adopted, but she doesn't look like everybody else. And we see instances of racism. We see instances of her pushing back on that. And we see her and others and the story shifting society to accept that. So in the casting on Netflix, the lead character Alina is played by Jessica May Lee, who is from England, but has a Chinese father. And her perennial love interest, Mal, the other orphan, is actually played by Archie Renault, who is of Indian ancestry. So the point is, you're not letting your kids watch a TV show that is whitewashed. And that is not just a casting decision that is in the original text. I don't have a teenager, despite the behaviour of my six-year-old sometimes feeling quite teenage. Would adults enjoy it? Yeah, I'm currently watching it with my husband. He thinks it's great. Not as violent as Game of Thrones and certainly not the level of nudity or anything like that that became quite common on our screens when Game of Thrones was everywhere. But yeah, it's pretty safe. Teenagers, I would give it to teenagers. I would give it to anyone 13 up. All right, I'll give it a go. I read a fantasy. I did fantasy. I read The Once and Future Witches by Alex E. Harrow. Are you proud of me? I am so proud. I have not read this book, so I am genuinely interested in your thoughts, your feelings, everything that happened. All right. So if you haven't read it, let me tell you a little bit about it. So the setting is the late 1800s and there are three sisters who use witchcraft to change the course of history. And in particular, their magical involvement is with the suffragist movement. So that got me in straight away, right? So our three sisters join the suffragists of a place called New Salem, and they begin to pursue what they call the forgotten words and ways of the women's movement, which is actually the witches' movement. I love it. So witches have kind of died out and disappeared and they're kind of trying to revive their power as part of the suffragist movement. And the sisters have to delve into really old magic. They have to draw on the past. And look, in magical words, they probably say something about healing the bond between them, but they have to sort their shit out because they've been arguing for a while. That is a good lesson to do. So Astrid, this is billed as an homage to the power and persistence of women, which is, I think is a really lovely way to describe it because the book is really a story of revolutions. It's a story of motherhood. It's a story of actual sisterhood, like genetic sisterhood, and it's a story of women's suffrage. So there are a few threads to this novel that I enjoyed in spite of myself, Astrid. It took a really playful approach to history. It draws on fairy tales, which made me feel a little bit more sure-footed, I think, in a fantasy world, which is not my usual place because it was there was all these references to fairy tales, which I knew. And 
it's a real celebration of women and women's magic. So I think it was a good one for me to get started in. So a question, fantasy often comes in series. Is this the first of a series or is this a standalone book? I believe it's standalone. That's lovely. That's a nice little in. So tell me about the the fairy tale bit. I'm interested in how you said that that was your in. That was kind of how you felt, not safe, but how you felt like you knew what was happening and you got all the references. Yeah. So there's a few nice little references to fairy tales in this, but also to the way fairy tales are told. So there's a lot of characters, for example, who have been gender flipped in the book. For example, the classic fairy tale collectors are the Sisters Grimm and there's reference to Homer being renamed as a woman and a popular detective writer, not a fairy tale, but a popular detective writer called Miss Doyle. So there is some lovely gender flipping in the fairy tales, but I think it's more the the fairy tale formula. And I wrote a little bit of this down to give you a sense. So Harrow, the author, initially introduces the three protagonists in this way. James Juniper is the youngest with hair as ravaged and black as crow feathers, right? Like it feels like you're reading a fairy tale. Agnes is the middle sister with hair as shining and black as a hawk's eye. And Beatrice is the oldest sister with hair like owl's feathers, soft and dark and streaked with an early gray. So very fairy tale like, but as the novel plays out, we move away from these really appearance-focused descriptions of the women to describing them in quite a different way. And by the sort of third half of the novel, we're talking about James as the wild sister, fearless as a fox and curious as a crow. Agnes is the strong sister, steady as the stone and twice as hard. Beatrice is the wise sister, quiet and clever as an owl in the rafters. And I really enjoyed how this kind of archetype helped transform the characters and I think it was a really strong part of the novel because it could have felt quite simplistic and quite misogynistic almost to focus on how these women looked. But as the characters develop and we come to know them more and they go on their character's journey, we start to see them for who they are and the substance of what they can do. So who would you recommend this book for? You said that you enjoyed the fairy tale bit, you enjoyed the historical context bit and how that was reinterpreted. And of course, you've enjoyed the story of the women themselves. But who was it for? I think it's clearly aimed at a female audience. I would say it's an adult book because of the complexity of the language. The style is quite impressive, actually, like the use of language. There's a lot of, I think the word is anaphora, when you repeat the same phrase at the start of a sentence multiple times to just really re-emphasise what you mean. And it's something I actually do in my writing a lot in a very different format, but that adds to the complexity and the kind of old-fashioned fairy tale language and the references to history and suffragettes I think would make a younger reader struggle so I think you're looking at adult women and I found it a really nice gateway drug to fantasy. Um, (gasps) Jem has found a gateway drug to fantasy. Yes I have yes I have and I think I think it was the suffragettes like through line, right? That really assisted me. You know, I I had some criticisms. I had the frustration that similar to what we spoke about earlier in the episode, parts of the achievements of the suffragists were explained by magic. And 
I know that's necessary for a story like this, but I was a bit like, no, no, they, they would they give did those it. achievements to the suffragettes. <laughs> they didn't need magic. They did it anyway. Let's give our praise to the civil rights movement, the labor movement, and the feminist movement, please. So there were some moments like that that frustrated me a little, but I really enjoyed it. I read it really quickly and I had a good time. I don't even know how to end this. I am so <laughs> happy that you read fantasy. You did it. We're four seasons in, but you did it. All right, so it's recommendations time and I don't have anything new to bring to you all today. I just clearly love fantasy and I want to make the recommendation that if you have a middle grade reader of any gender, I do believe that Jessica Townsend's Nevermore Chronicles are beautiful, they are inclusive and they will stand the test of time. If you have a teenage reader of any gender, I actually think what we talked about today, Lee Bardugo, Shadow and Bone, it's pretty damn good. Excellent representations of disability and pretty good representations of women by an author who herself has a disability. And finally, if you are an adult reader and if you have come across like Jam, some of the really bad previous parts of the fantasy genre, I recommend N.K. Jemison. She is a black American author. She has taken out all of the international fantasy awards for all of her books. She has short stories, standalone works and trilogies and her fantasy is so goddamn diverse. It is incredible and I recommend that adults dive into her work. I don't know what you're going to say for a recommendation, Jam, but (laughs) I am putting it out to you. All right. I'm going to tread carefully with this one, Astrid, and it perhaps does betray my narrow reading of fantasy in the past. I want to recommend the Harry Potter series of books because I grew up with those books. I adored those books. I remember ordering the final of the seven and in our home, I still lived at home with my parents. I was about 17, I think, maybe 16. And we had to order three because my mum, my sister and I weren't willing to wait for one of the others to finish because we were so desperate. And I remember my sister yelling at me because I can read faster than her. And I exclaimed <laughs> at one point and she was like, don't tell me. Those books were really special to me growing up. They made me feel safe. They were something I read for comfort. They, I think, had a beautiful story, or at least what I read as a beautiful story of inclusion and equality and not giving in to propaganda and what you're told, but staying true to your friends. And in recent years I've found it hard to look back on those books with the same white light of positivity because of some of the public comments by JK Rowling about trans men and women and I find those comments deplorable and really upsetting and I think they hit with a harder blow because like many people I thought of those books as truly inclusive and representative kind of books but with an older more mature eye I can see the gaps. I'm currently rereading Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone the first in the series with my seven-year-old niece she reads over FaceTime to me and it stacks up pretty well the first one and she has she's a Hufflepuff and she has fallen in love with the world and hundreds of millions of children continue to fall in love with that world and find themselves in it. I don't think the text is perfect. I don't think the text is bad either. I think it's pretty okay. 
what I think has become terrible is the comments made by JK Rowling over many years now and some of the ways she tries to reinterpret characters that she didn't actually put in the original text and that is backfilling and weird and odd. I agree with that but the reason I wanted to include this as my recommendation is because I've done a lot of reading in this space, a lot of listening to trans people in my life, trans people who are smarter than me who I read on the internet and parents of trans children who have written extensively about this. If you go online and do a bit of a Google, you'll find so much content. And while everyone is entitled to their individual view, the view that I have taken away from all of that reading is that, yes, if this book was affirming and loving and inclusive for you, then you can choose to read it that way. You are within your rights to separate the author's personal views from how you have drawn comfort and solace in that text. And you are well within your rights to continue loving those books and reading them over and over again if you want and still be a fierce ally of the trans community or a proud trans person yourself. That's all we've got time for today on Anonymous Was a Woman. It was such a pleasure having your company. Astrid and I appreciate every single listener and we love you most because you are people who like books, which means you're the best kind of people. If you would like to hear more from Anonymous Was a Woman, then you can follow us on social media. You can check us out via the Future Women platform on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. You can also head to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and a review as well as subscribing. And that will mean that you never miss an episode. Anonymous Was a Woman is made thanks to Future Women and Bad Producer Productions. And this season wouldn't have been possible without the generous support of Hachette Publishing, who continue to support women who tell stories. <laughs> <laughs>